Do you know what happens to an X-Men movie when it's selected on Superhero Rewind? The same thing that happens to everything else. The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before listening to this review. I've been at this thing for nearly a decade, and if you've listened to any of my early Rewind reviews, especially in the first year, you know that the show has changed dramatically, and I've gotten a lot more thorough in my analysis. Some of that was in allowing the premise of the show to evolve, and some of it was finding my critical footing. Just as superhero movies were pulling out of their growing pains, I was experiencing mine in full force. Back then, I could knock one of these out between lunch and dinner, movie watching, writing, editing, the works. It was basically synopsis, movie works or doesn't, rating, peace I'm out. Which is not true, because I've never uttered that phrase before, and now that I've tried it, I never will again. I get a lot of requests to revisit movies I reviewed during the Rewind Stone Age, and it's been years already since the first and only one I've attempted, my very first review, Superman Doomsday. So I decided it was high time to give another one of these the modern treatment. I opened up a vote on Patreon, and the winner was X-Men, beating Batman 89 by a narrow margin. Because no matter how many commentaries and discussions I do on that movie, folks still want a more fleshed-out rewind. It's neat that X-Men was the next movie selected because it happens to be the second rewind I recorded, and Batman is the third. So assuming 89 wins the next poll, we're revisiting the first three of these in order when I get back to doing a revisited review. I don't know why I chose X-Men second. Maybe I wanted to get it out of the way early so I could hurry up and do X2, or maybe it's because I'll just never get enough Patrick Stewart on screen. If I ever experience my own Days of Future Past, I'll go back and ask myself. This wouldn't have been my first pick for a revisit, because despite the whopping seven minutes I spent on it last time, I kind of feel like I've said my piece already. Now, that's not me naively claiming this will be a short review. We all know that no matter what I end up writing, it'll be longer. A lot longer. But that doesn't guarantee I'll have anything insightful to add. However, there's certainly a lot I could have elaborated on, and it'll be interesting and maybe even a little surreal going all the way back after almost two decades of this property. As I pointed out in the Days of Future Past review, it's the only superhero franchise to make it this long, with films released regularly that hasn't full-on rebooted. I mean, it doesn't seem to care whether any continuity lines up anymore, and after Apocalypse, we've lost all hope of making it all gel with the second-chance soft reboot Days of Future Past gave us, but it's a great achievement technically, and certainly that original flavor has never totally disappeared from these movies. I consider the first X-Men film the father of the golden age of comic book movies we find ourselves in now. I don't mean that golden age begins with this movie that's born out of Iron Man and the Dark Knight in 2008, and there was a lot of rocky road to hoe on our way there, but X-Men is crucial to getting us to those movies and beyond. It's not just because it finally breaks through the 89 Batman clone slump superhero movies were mostly in through the 90s. There weren't a lot, but for the movies that were made, it was an easy formula to plug in for. They were expected to look gritty and realistic, but they didn't have to really be about anything. They didn't require character depth, they just needed to tonally look serious and not campy. Batman was a novelty that everyone and his dog seemed to appreciate because it wasn't 60s cheese and it looked like it was for adults, but it also was kind of disposable entertainment. 
It wasn't a memorable entry in another genre like The Dark Knight would be for crime dramas. It revolutionized the superhero movie, but after that, these kinds of movies were still for people who already liked superheroes. X-Men made a case for movies based on superhero comics that might grab people with ideas and stories rather than costumes and action, and transcend well beyond comic book fans. Blade and X-Men might have started a wave of studios giving these properties a chance, but X-Men is really the first major superhero movie to translate its colorful, over-the-top, melodramatic source material to a relatively grounded film about socially relevant issues, like so many of these movies are doing now. And of course, those issues are what the X-Men comics were about, but the idea that that would be the focus certainly wasn't a given. It's easy to take for granted now, because comic book films have become so legitimized as a place to tell serious stories, but in 2000, it looked like an inspired choice to set X-Men in a world that looks a lot like ours, and put the focus on the ethical conundrum the mutant idea presents. How can regular people protect themselves from people who are naturally dangerous, through no fault of their own, without curbing the rights of mutants? rather than putting that idea in the background and just using it as an excuse for big action set pieces. Some of that was a matter of utility. Brian Singer didn't have a lot of money for a big action movie, so it was to his advantage to make a more intimate idea and character-driven movie where the audience would be swept up in the narrative and the action would be icing on top, instead of being the reason they're staying in their seats. The action isn't terribly staged or executed, but the gap in budget between the first and second films is cavernous. There are places like Wolverine on the super-fast motorcycle that look pretty TV. If this movie relied entirely on action, it would have felt like a cheap TV movie, and it would have been a joke. Sometimes the most creative and most effective ideas come from lack of resources. X-Men worked because of its limitations. In his commentary, Brian Singer says they tried a more stylized spandex look in the first place and it just didn't work. Thank Apocalypse. If they'd thought that looked good, the story may have been stylized to match and the superhero movie landscape would look very different today. Don't get me wrong, I would have loved the 90s animated series aesthetic translated to live action right then, but even if it worked, I don't know that the movie would have been as influential as it was, and while I like more bombastic X-Men, this was the perfect material to use in proving that movies like this don't have to be cartoons. Unfortunately, convincing general audiences that there's something emotionally and thematically worthwhile in X-Men is the movie's main accomplishment. It's oddly great at demonstrating that this stuff can be really story-driven, but it doesn't actually tell a great story so much as establish interesting ideas and get us on board for the real story which it will tell next time. I can't imagine a world without X2, and those three years between this and its release feel like the Dark Ages now. If that's all that had been made, we'd have a great proof of concept, a solid TV pilot, but not a great piece all on its own, and not one that's especially rewatchable. Even Brian Singer, in his commentary, calls it a prologue. It's the best example there is, I think, of the consummate setup film. This is back matter and character introduction to provide the context uninitiated audiences need to understand what they're watching when they get to X2. I would argue that if you know nothing about X-Men or its premise going into this, there may be a lot of material that would watch a storytelling in the moment that feels more to me like exposition because a lot of it is just establishing the basics. You can't just hand the viewer a folder of character dossiers to refer to while watching Watching the movie. There's a lot more legwork to do with an ensemble piece than a singular protagonist story, especially when they all have their own unique powers, histories, and interpersonal dynamics, and when it's not an origin film per se.
X-Men is unique in that it exists to pitch this idea to the public, but it doesn't start right at the beginning, and it doesn't hold the audience's hand in delivering the mythology. Most of the exposition is deftly communicated, with characters only explaining things in a natural way to others who wouldn't know them. Like when Jean Grey presents her medical findings about Logan to the professor, his adamantium skeleton, and how he must have been experimented on. Singer could have started in a first-class place, with a younger Xavier and Magneto setting up the school in the first place, and in hindsight, that might have been a good way to avoid a muddled and convoluted continuity as the series continued. But that also might have shot it in the foot right out the gate. There's a delicate balance struck between staying true to the spirit of the original material to delight old fans and introducing all that to a new audience in a palatable way. The soap opera is more difficult to realize if you start at the very beginning of the team itself, and I think all the hinting at personal histories and relationships while dropping us into an already established X-Men world appealed to both types of viewers. This feels like a rich and involved world that has a lot of room to expand, but doesn't feel like it would take six movies before you got to all the juicy stuff, or that you'd have to rush to get there like we had a bit with the Raimi Spider-Man films. You also couldn't have had Patrick Stewart play Professor X, which was the biggest given about this as a potential film franchise. Most fans at the time couldn't imagine anyone else playing that role, and Singer says in the commentary there was never another choice. In a perfect world, X-Men would be a serialized TV show, with the kind of budget to support the kinds of stunts and effects we have here, which is a thing that feels more possible now with advances in visual effects and a greater variety of broadcast platforms. I look at a show like Legion, and I can't see why these characters can't get a big screen-worthy, small-screen treatment and run with the soap opera. And with that show's popularity and other attempts at characters from X-Men on television, if it's ever finally rebooted, I mean, who knows? Deadpool is a bigger deal theatrically more than X-Men now, at least at the time of this recording. Perhaps someday I'll get my wish, and we can finally get a great ongoing X-Men story that doesn't lose track of its own continuity after two installments. Or, maybe like Professor Xavier, I'm a little overly idealistic. While Xavier and Magneto's relationship had always been the most interesting thing to me in X-Men stories, and that made for infinitely more thought-provoking character study and drama in First Class and Days of Future Past years later, this is absolutely what I would have done with it at the time. Go with the familiar status quo and some of the characters people loved from the 90s animated series, and build on that as you continue forward. Singer says in his commentary that he watched the entire cartoon show, really loved it, and I think that shows. I love the sense of lineage in this movie, with Cyclops and Storm as original X-Men teaching the next generation. And that's fun because they would have been teen pupils of Xavier around the early years of Chris Claremont's comic run in real life, which are the stories that inspire a lot of what's here. Wolverine and Rogue are new to this secret world that's been there for years, and we get to explore it along with them without having to watch the X-Men slowly and painfully become what we know and love. This film tonally and thematically feels authentically X-Men from start to finish. It's not Star Trek 09 or Casino Royale in that way. It's another popular superhero film before too many of them would fall back on origins that, like Batman 89, don't do that, though also like that movie, it is a starting point. 89 isn't an origin for Batman, but it's the early days and it ends with Gotham accepting Batman as a hero. This movie ends with Rogue staying at the school and Wolverine leaving to discover where he comes from but vowing to return. 
But just because there are really good reasons it ended up as such a setup movie isn't to say it couldn't have told a deeper story and developed more of its characters. The special effects are understandably and wisely minimal. Dialogue? Not so much. This movie is shot like every actor was paid by the word. It's so economical about its characterizations, making sure that, with the exception of rare and infamous one-liners and action scenes, nobody says anything without the express purpose of progressing the narrative. For a movie so concerned with the big ideas, racial prejudice, unfairness in nature, compassion versus our base survival instincts, it sometimes feels plotty when there's not even a great deal of plot to speak of. But that happens when characters exist to serve basic story functions and feel like they're reading the lines that get us to the next scene, rather than people who just naturally say what's on their minds. Very few characters actually come alive to me here. It's not an introduction for most of them, it's a handshake. Again, I appreciate that characters aren't constantly talking, because the movie doesn't think I'm smart enough to understand what's going on, but much of the time, they just don't talk about anything, so I don't get to know them or what they're all about, and in that way, it may rely too much on prior knowledge of these characters, hoping fans will be satisfied enough just to see Cyclops and Jean Grey represented, never mind what they actually get to do, and that everyone else will be interested enough in the main protagonist that they won't notice. It's not that Dark Knight Rises problem, where sometimes I don't understand basic character motivations, but at least everyone in that movie has a concrete personality. We put a ton of pins in characters I hope to see more fleshed out next time. Like, maybe Storm and Cyclops would get to shine next movie, but of course, they never really do, which makes it worse on repeat viewings. I think the movie may be overcompensating, for fear of an overcrowded cast we can't keep track of, if we're expected to remember too much backstory and too many character details, and this is, of course, before enormous casts of characters with different superpowers, like Civil War, but movies like that also benefit from being sequels. The later X-Men movies may have left some of these characters as nearly blank placeholders, forgetting that Cyclops and Storm are central protagonists in other X-Men things, and aren't Sulu or Uhura, but it's more understandable in your first film, because you don't have all that on-screen history already to draw on. The movie treats these characters like they're as equally captivating and endearing as Wolverine by the end of the film, not glorified background characters. It's fine to put one or two characters front and center. The whole team doesn't have to have their own arcs, and we don't need five different subplots. But I'm supposed to care about the love triangle between Wolverine, Scott, and Jean, and two of the points on that triangle are just girl protagonist likes and guy she's with so protagonists can't have her. It's really weird how much drama there is in Logan and Rogue's story to outcasts who can't be part of the world because they're too dangerous to live in it, and how nothing Logan's obsession with Jean Grey and his hatred for Cyclops is. By not developing those characters, the movie makes an otherwise interesting and tragic protagonist in Wolverine also feel less realized, but only in the scenes he has with those characters. The Brotherhood of Mutants has the same problem. They're less a brotherhood and more a would-be tyrant with a couple thugs. They have the benefit of being intentional mysterious. I'm supposed to assume Mystique and Sabretooth have fascinating and tragic backstories, and they both seem like people who have been horribly wronged by humankind and have sufficient reason for following Magneto, even though we only get faint clues about what those histories might be. I don't feel like I'm expected to know or care more about them than I do like I am with some of the X-Men. So while it's frustrating how little spoken they are, and how little I know about them, it doesn't feel like there's a bunch of vital material missing like it does with Cyclops, Jean, and Storm. Mystique and Sabretooth at least suggest interesting things about characters the movie is actually about. The way Mystique caresses Magneto after he kidnaps Senator Kelly implies they're an item and they've been together a long time. And she's an interesting companion given her ability allows her to do something he his parents couldn't when he was a child and persecuted by the Nazis, hide who they were. 
But all I really know about her is that she's sneaky and good at undercover work, and not just because she's a shapeshifter. She gets to know people's personalities and can fool their family and friends for long periods, like she does when she impersonates Guyrich. We know she's perfectly comfortable in her naked skin when she's not pretending to be someone else, takes a perverse pleasure in getting back at humans for making her feel afraid, and is really good at flying helicopters. Not a skill I would have associated with Mystique before this movie came out, and I'd forgotten about it. But now that I've seen this again, and even with all the great character work she gets in the prequels, I'm going to have a hard time not thinking of Helicopter Pilot as a major trait for her from here on out. Sabretooth's dog tag and the way he looks at Wolverine makes it clear that he was also a Weapon X experiment, not that the specific project is name-dropped here, and suggests that they may have had a past Logan doesn't know about. He's the first clue about what happened to Wolverine, and that's a fun bone to throw fans even though Logan never realizes it. That's a total missed opportunity in the sequel, when Wolverine finally catches up to his past, but Sabretooth is nowhere to be found and isn't even mentioned again? I guess we're supposed to think he died when he got thrown off Lady Liberty, unless the movies eventually decide to bring him back, which only happened in a prequel, X-Men Origins, and we all know how well that turned out, and how canonical fans take that movie. But come on, Sabretooth fell into a boat! How isn't everyone expecting him right back after Wolverine in the next movie? He has healing factor, right? I guess the movie doesn't really make that clear, but everyone else has their traditional powers. He does definitely have that in Origins, but again, you get a picture of that movie when you look up Grain of Salt in the dictionary. And he has it in Brian K. Vaughn's X2 prequel comic, where he shows up after getting knocked off Lady Liberty to get revenge on Logan for messing up his chance to find out where he comes from. Like a personal motivation or something. Which we don't get for him here. Again, that's not really a problem if it's fleshed out later, if he's guarding his motives for a reason, but unless you read that one shot where this Goliath, whose longest line previously is scream for me, is given pages of dialogue and he's a totally different character, that never happens. Here he's just big and imposing and protects Magneto. And he's a little slow and not real bright, totally missing the sarcastic, taunting sense of humor he has in the comics. But maybe he's either lost that in the experiments or gains it later. Maybe he has to find himself as much as Wolverine does. He's not totally unsympathetic, though. I feel bad for him when he tries to pull Senator Kelly up into the cell, but he slips through his fingers because Kelly is turning into a mutated amphibian creature, and Magneto straightens the bars to lock Sabretooth in. That's not fair. That wasn't Sabretooth's fault. The guy was all slippery. What was he supposed to do? Speaking of things not being fair, that's the message the movie drives home, and it's quite effective. We can't all be superheroes. Just like in real life, we can't all be football stars, or blockbuster movie directors, or Doctor Who. It's sad, but true. But natural inequality doesn't stop there. Even the superheroes can't all have equal powers, or perfectly control their powers, or not have terrible trade-offs for those powers. There are consequences to every mutant for being different from everyone else. Having powers can be really cool, but there's a price, harsher for some than others, and powers are more of a curse than a blessing for some. Up to this point, at least in film, having superpowers was usually depicted as a wonderful thing for whoever had them. Sure, in the Richard Donner film, Superman has to deal with the fact that even as powerful as he is, he has limitations when he loses his father to a heart attack. But X-Men showed us the scary side of being a superhero, the personal consequences and the potential to hurt or kill if you can't control your abilities. Rogue can absorb people's energy and powers, but it hurts them and can kill them. Until she uses her gift to save herself, she wouldn't even think to call it a gift. 
and she'd still rather be able to kiss a boy without putting him in the hospital than have it. Cyclops can shoot beams of energy from his eyes, which is awesome, but the trade-off is he has to wear something over his eyes at all times or it comes out in an uncontrollable wave and destroys everything. But some mutants, like Xavier and Storm, don't seem to have any personal sacrifices they have to make at least to use their powers. Life isn't fair. But that's not to say there aren't still consequences for their being mutants. They still have to hide what they are for fear of reprisals from an unaccepting world. I wish the movie dealt more with how those trade-offs and sacrifices affect anyone other than Logan and Rogue. Cyclops' power is not unlike Rogue's in that it makes it difficult for him to be around people without hurting them. He's functioning in a group, is even the leader of that group. In a way, she doesn't think she can, which is why she tried to go it alone before she met Logan. It might have been interesting to see Cyclops try to mentor her, and to see the best parts of him and Logan, two men who can't get along but both want a lot of the same things through her eyes. Not to rewrite the movie, but it would have gone a long way to make Scott more fully realized if it had taken advantage of that dangling parallel. We're all born with things we can't change about ourselves, and there will always be people who either want to exploit us for our differences or persecute us for them. Sometimes what makes us different might be seen as a gift, sometimes a curse, sometimes both. It's understandable that people might be afraid of what they don't understand and have a difficult time figuring out how to live together without someone getting the short end of the stick for the sake of the greater good. But it's nobody's fault that they're born with what they're born with, and the movie presents two perspectives on that. Xavier's, that we can find a way to coexist despite that natural unfairness, and Magneto's, that it's impossible, so the best we can hope for is order by those not who are politically or financially strongest, but naturally strongest. While Xavier's philosophy might be the most humane, and for most of us, the more moral perspective, both are extreme and neither is wholly realistic. Totally peaceful, fair cohabitation is impossible because there are people who are too dangerous through no fault of their own that society has to be protected from. That's the big difference, of course, when you're talking about difference in ability and something like superpowers and, say, skin color. Senator Kelly has a point when he says children need to somehow be safe at school for mutants who are ten times more dangerous than a handgun. While he seems to go so far with the rhetoric that he doesn't fully see mutants as people, probably because classifying mutants as other makes it easier for him to justify what he sees as their necessary classification and, realistically, subjugation, his concerns are well-founded, and there simply isn't a good answer for them. If you pass a Mutant Registration Act, you're invading mutants' privacy, and you risk creating a segregated society where mutants are treated as second-class citizens, and inferior. But if you go with Magneto's view, forget the ethics of lording over those you deem the genetically inferior because you see yourself not as less than human but a new advanced species that has moved beyond them, you still risk class warfare because all the mutants aren't going to see themselves as equals. If powers make mutants better than humans, what's to stop some mutants from seeing themselves as superior to other mutants because they have better powers? If you make your society all about the strong controlling the weak, that won't stop at mutants ruling humans. We see that in how Magneto treats his fellow mutants. He manipulates and uses them because he deems it necessary. But as Logan points out, when he asks why Magneto uses Rogue to power his machine rather than doing it himself, he's not willing to sacrifice himself. He already acts superior, not just to humans, but to anyone he can control. But that's because his argument with Xavier goes beyond a disagreement about what sort of society is best for mutants, or even whether either of their ideas is sustainable. It's an argument about the human condition, about whether people are really capable en masse of being decent to one another. 
Sure, individually, when it's easy or when it's someone we really care about, we have compassion. But Magneto learns in the worst way possible, at an early age, what people in power are capable of doing to those without it, and people who are just taking orders from those people in power. It's interesting that Eric's worldview doesn't come from the way he's treated because he's a mutant, but from regular, old-fashioned racial prejudice. First Class will make that a more complicated matter later, with Shaw using Magneto for his powers, and the issue of mutation gets intertwined with what happens to him in Poland. But just looking at this film as a singular piece, Eric comes to his philosophy because he comes to hate humanity for its bigotry toward one another, not mutants. By separating himself from humanity genetically, it's easier for Magneto to justify his actions. I am not like them, I am better. But I know they'll wipe us out because we're stronger than them, so I have no choice but to wipe them out first. I think Magneto is incredibly conflicted. He wants to buy his own rhetoric, and he believes it to a point. Mutants and humans can't coexist because humans by nature will stamp out what's not like them if given the opportunity. But the question is, is Magneto really about doing what he thinks is best and necessary for his people, or is it more about revenge? Killmonger has a similar contradiction in Black Panther. At first, Poland seems to only inform Magneto's bleak view of humankind. But by the end, when he knows his plan may not be viable and he goes through with it anyway, I wonder if it's not all about Poland in the first place. He wants to turn a bunch of conveniently gathered world leaders into mutants so that his cause will be theirs. It's all about the motives of men in power. They won't pass a registration act that would limit their own freedoms, so if they're mutants, suddenly it's his kind that's in power. But it doesn't work. It's a forced mutation and isn't stable. So when he uses it on Senator Kelly, he starts to turn into a fish guy and then dies as a huge puddle of water. When the X-Men try to warn Magneto that the machine doesn't work, he ignores them and tries to use it anyway. There's no discussion as to why, and it's maybe a little open to interpretation. He may not believe them. He may think it's a ruse to make him change his mind. But he doesn't postpone his plan to check into it. I don't think he actually cares either way. Deep down, Magneto just wants to punish humanity for what was done to him as a child. If his primary goal was really to help and protect mutant kind, he wouldn't risk murdering so many world leaders, because, as Senator Kelly says, that proves him right. And what started as a hot-button issue becomes an instant world crisis. If people believed the mutant was to blame, considering the gruesome and agonizing way the leaders would die, it would seem pretty obvious it had to have something to do with mutation. He'd destroy any possibility of mutants retaining any rights, much less taking over. He's fighting becoming what he hates. Otherwise, he'd just do what he does toward the end of X2 and look for a way to cause genocide, which seems easier with the technology he's built than turning people into mutants. But because he doesn't hesitate to turn the possibly defective machine on, and because he won't sacrifice himself for his cause to do it, his primary motivation must be to make people pay for his personal pain. I've always found Magneto compelling because he has a point. He doesn't see himself as the villain, and his perspective is sympathetic even if it's extreme and misguided. And I don't think this takes away from that. I like that he doesn't realize how broken he is, and can admit that he has become like the people he sees himself as superior to. He's a lot like Ultron, who I discussed last review, who creates everything he hates, just as he says mankind always does. Magneto uses his power to take advantage of those who are weaker than him, and he tries to stamp out anything that's different, for the same reason the government is trying to pass the Mutant Registration Act, because he's afraid of them. 
A part of him is still that little boy who mangled the fence with his powers when Nazis took his family. He doesn't want to see mutants oppressed by humans, but what he really wants is to not feel helpless. And it's the same fear that leads so many people who find themselves with some sort of power to control people. I like that Storm, in her one and only real character moment, admits that she sometimes hates regular people because she's afraid of them. The good guys, fighting for tolerance, have the same hang-ups that their enemies do. They just make a different choice. That fear is natural. The question is, can reason and understanding trump that fear in the long run, or are we destined to be ruled by it? And because humans and mutants both face this dilemma, they're not so different, which might be a comfort, or it might be a tragedy. The Statue of Liberty is an obvious symbol. Our most recognizable representation of freedom for all people used to ostensibly finally create that equality, which has always been a lie. Magnino is making a statement about what America purports to be and what he thinks it really is. He sees it as a perverse symbol, so he tries to use it as an instrument of true equality, which will make everyone just like him. But he fails to realize that that makes him exactly like his oppressors, and when the machine doesn't work, he uses the statue as a weapon of terror, a perversion of even what he claims he's all about. That demonstrates, literally and symbolically, that Magneto doesn't believe in equality of any kind. In his commentary, Singer mentions that there were two other prologues originally written for the movie but never filmed, one for Cyclops and one for Storm. He didn't want the movie to get bogged down in background material before the actual story starts. The two that are left in are a little counterintuitive from a structure and thematic standpoint. You'd think if you were going to open a movie like this with flashbacks, you'd set up the opposing moral arguments with background for the two men that are really our prime movers, Magneto and Xavier. Maybe show us how Xavier lost the use of his legs in contrast to Magneto's tragic backstory. Instead, we have Eric in an internment camp, a victim discovering his power, and we have Marie, Rogue, putting a boy she kisses in a coma and discovering her power, which will be the catalyst for her becoming a victim to Magneto. These scenes actually complement each other really well. And thank goodness neither of them was cut, especially Magneto's, or I wouldn't be able to do half the analysis I've done about him. Well, except he's got the numbers on his arm, so I guess I could infer some of that. But anyway, these scenes are not about establishing worldview as much as establishing the reality of power. Because that's what this movie is all about. The danger of intentional and unintentional power. The Nazis, of course, represent power that corrupts and robs people of their humanity. Rogue represents unwanted power, the kind that can turn the person who wields it into a victim herself. Eric and Marie are both teenagers discovering new and terrifying truths about themselves, instantly establishing the puberty metaphor. For Eric, it's a blessing, again, until it's elaborated on in first class. His power will allow him to fight the injustices he was helpless to prevent before. For Marie, it's a curse. She won't be able to live a normal life because she can't make physical contact with anyone. Marie's kind are in danger of being persecuted the way Eric's were, Jews in Germany, but ultimately, he'll do her the most damage and risk creating another broken person with no faith in the people who claim to want to make the world a better place. Without the X-Men, if Rogue had somehow survived, she might have become bitter and let her fear overtake her the way Magneto did, using her power to try to control the world before it could hurt her again. Rogue has the sort of power we usually give to supervillains. She's like a leech or a parasite, feeding off of others, taking everything, and if she's not careful, until there's nothing left. This easily could have been a villain origin, the vicious cycle. Magneto gets hurt, he hurts Rogue, she hurts someone else. But as Xavier says to Kelly, mutants are not all like Magneto, and she's seen that in Logan and in the X-Men. 
So those opening scenes are a roadmap for how the whole movie unfolds thematically and narratively. I also like how effortlessly they give us exposition that's then reinforced by the exposition in dialogue nicely couched in a speech Jean gives to the Senate. We actually know a lot of what she's saying already about mutation and when it manifests even if we don't realize it, but it doesn't feel like hand-holding because I'm never taken out. And I like that we've already seen the very real problem Senator Kelly talks about. Even though he's on a slippery slope and is in the wrong, he has perfectly valid points about the dangers of people with unchecked secret powers. And side note, as Kelly comes to briefly appreciate the other side of his argument with the time he spends with X-Men, he weirdly is more drawn also than a lot of the X-Men. But while the focus on Rogue and Magneto is effective, Xavier is a big question mark in this movie, on its own. And while Stewart's performance is instantly compelling, and he feels like there must be a lot of complexity to him, Xavier comes off like a story device instead of a fully realized character. He has a background with Magneto, they used to be friends, and maybe that history helped shape Xavier's idealism, but that's all we know. I've asked this question in other reviews, but if Xavier is one of the most powerful mutants alive, and a lot of them have difficulty controlling their powers, how did he he learned to control his before he accidentally fought people to death, and that will never be addressed in 17 years of films. He's here to be the opposing viewpoint to Magneto, and that's all fascinating later, but here he's not much more than a really engaging walking philosophy. I always thought Wolverine and Rogue was an inspired pairing. They have a lot in common in their powers and how they set them apart from the world, and they create a really logical symbiotic relationship, but before this, I would have never thought of it. Of course, to make that work, Rogue is the biggest departure from the comics and is the only character who feels like she might start in a younger, unfamiliar place and eventually grow into the version we're all familiar with, which never really happens, but I've always seen it as a valid reinvention rather than a Rogue who never comes into her own. She's made a second-generation X-Man instead of being of a similar age to Cyclops and Storm to give Logan someone who's going through some of the same stuff he is but who can help him find his sense of responsibility and purpose. He's forced in a mentor role for a young girl who doesn't have anyone. That could have been Kitty Pride, and this is almost a fusion of those characters, but her power set doesn't lend itself as well to the character parallels that make this such a natural pair. I said in my first review that Logan heals and Rogue hurts, and that's true as far as their basic power sets are concerned, but that isn't exactly what we have. I oversimplified that. They both hurt, and they both heal, but only themselves. Their powers are totally offensive, and they both take huge risks just being around other people. Yes, Logan has a healing factor, but Marie can heal by stealing it, and she can gain energy from anyone by stealing that. Whenever I talk about energy powers, I feel like I'm breaking down a pencil and paper RPG. Their powers are both conducive to their own survival, but not to living in a social environment. Both demonstrate their ability to do massive harm completely on accident. Rogue when she puts a boy in a coma, and Logan when he stabs Rogue during a nightmare. Which, side note, we may have Jean Grey partly to blame. I don't know if he would have had that Weapon X dream if she hadn't read his mind earlier and excavated those memories. If that's what happened. That's how I've always read it, but he might have that dream every night for all I know. Anyway, Rogue and Logan both find an appreciation for their gifts or curses as they help each other. While there's no easy answer to making sure other people are safe without making huge personal concessions, they both come to realize they aren't alone, and they can come closer to that by being part of Xavier's community, instead of continuing to go it alone or use people like Magneto does. Logan continues to be a loner, but he has a place with the X-Men at the end that he maybe wants to take advantage of once he has discovered his origins. His X-Men origins. 
The reputation these movies get for always being about Wolverine starts at the very beginning. Despite the fact that he turns out not to be the MacGuffin to run Magneto's mutate the world leaders and make the town a better place machine, Logan is still the main POV character, has the greatest transformation even though he and Rogue have parallel character arcs, and he's our eyes into the X-Men's secret society. But even Rogue's arc kind of feels more like it's in service to Logan's than an arc unto itself. She is proactive, but a lot of things happen to her so that Logan will have choices to make and ultimately decide to be a hero for her rather than abandoning her, like he tried to do when they first met and continuing to wander around without purpose. Logan wants answers to who he is and what was done to him, wants not to feel helpless, kind of like Magneto, but he also comes to find he can't leave people in the same boat as him out to dry. Boat out to dry. Anyway, moving on, and when he pursues that greater purpose, he's rewarded with a lead to the answers he was looking for in the first place by Professor X at the end. I don't think the real problem is that it's all about Wolverine. He's the guy who hasn't discovered his heroic identity yet, and he's a perfect vessel to explore how Xavier's school inspires and changes people. But after this, he becomes our Captain Kirk, and the rest of the cast falls in behind. I don't think there was any reason to assume he was the protagonist of the entire franchise moving forward. Again, it's smart to focus on a character or two in a team movie, but it shouldn't be the same character or two every time, at least if the title of the film is X-Men and not Wolverine. This was resolved by the prequel films, but I wanted to mention it because I know it's always been a point of contention between fans, but I don't think this first film is really the problem, at least regarding who actually gets a realized arc. Not realizing characters like Cyclops is a huge issue that begins here. I also find it amusing that I know more about and understand Logan, who doesn't know anything about himself, more than I do any of the non-amnesiacs around him. Finally, I have two giant questions about Magneto's plan. First, how does he know about Rogue and her powers? It's a big reveal that he was after her all along and not Wolverine, and I think the movie is relying on our assumption that he wanted Logan from earlier in the film, who I would have assumed he knew about because he somehow had knowledge of Weapon X. But once we know that's not the case, which we realize as soon as they meet, because Magneto is surprised by the animanium lacing Logan's entire skeletal structure, Magneto's whole plan falls apart. We know Mystique can easily infiltrate Xavier's school, but they didn't learn about it that way because Xavier didn't seem to know about Rogue until Magneto went after her. I don't think. And it's not like Magneto has his own cerebro or would have any way to use it, even though, according to this, he's some kind of tech genius who helped build Cerebro, came up with a device that was supposed to make mutants out of humans but actually just turns their DNA into soup. Either way, very impressive and presumably invented a telepathy-canceling helmet. There are explanations for Cerebro in the helmet later, but they don't really match what we get here. Xavier makes it sound like the helmet is a recent development, and the mutating gyrosphere of terror would imply that when Xavier says Magneto helped him build Cerebro, he means that he actually helped him build it. Like he knows stuff about science and engineering, and doesn't also need Beast, and apparently likes building big round things that amplify superpowers. My other big question is why the machine has to work the way it does. I need to know more about it. It almost kills Magneto to power it because it has to run on his magnetic powers. And it doesn't seem like you can put any mutant in it. He picks Rogue because she can take his powers and then go in the machine. Why? How come you can't have it run on, I don't know, electricity? Magneto controls metal. He's not a battery. I get that he uses his power to make the thing spin around a bunch, but there's got to be more to it than that. I assume something about his mutant DNA is siphoned through it, and that's what transforms people. But again, why does it have to be him? 
Why can't he just put any mutant in there and then stand on the side and spin the thing around? I don't mind the silly pseudoscience. It's not an ultra-stylized world, but it is heightened, like the water-evaporating machine in Batman Begins, although I'd love some background about how Magneto has this expertise, but its conception seems poorly thought out to me. X-Men is a great foundation for one of my favorite movie worlds, and a lot of what I love about this franchise starts here. But while the social politics are interesting and the ideological conflict is thought-provoking, the story is thin and it's driven by a couple of compelling characters surrounded by well-acted placeholders. I'm scoring this one a little lower than last time. I'm giving the first X-Men movie a 2.5 out of 4. Hey, thanks everybody, as always, for listening to this review. We already have hit a couple more Patreon goals since Age of Ultron, and so the next review is going to be Guardians of the Galaxy, which I'm excited to finally tackle. Uh, I want to say thanks, as always, to all of our Patreon producers. If you'd like to become a patron and get early access to episodes of Superhero Rewind, to Geek Evolution After Dark twice a month, live chats with me once a month, and a whole bunch of other really fun perks, uh, Rewind Selection Board, you can help us decide some of the movies that are with you here on Superhero Rewind. Go to patreon.com slash geekvolution. Just the $2 tier gets you a lot of those perks. And I'd like right now to thank all of our Patreon producers. And if you'd like to become a Patreon producer, you can donate at the $10 tier. Our producers are Dylan Mustiello, Jackson Rasco, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Ethan, Todd Schmuck, Gui D, Caleb, Daniel Gibson, Malik Myers, Neil McCalmet, Magpie's Nest Productions, Ian McKee, David Crabtree, and Jeffrey Patron. Once again, you guys are wonderful. Thanks so much for all of your support. And I will see you again soon with Guardians of the Galaxy. Bye.